Hello and welcome to the Analytics FC podcast. I'm John McKenzie, Head of Content, and this week I spoke to Oliver Gage, the Director of Football for the Canadian Premier League. Originally from Sheffield, Oliver's career has carried him to North America via Leeds Met University and Sheffield Wednesday. Working as an analyst, he spent time with Houston Dynamo before joining the newly founded Canadian Premier League as their Director of Football in 2019. In our conversation, we talked about the various challenges faced by analysts working at the level of individual players, within clubs, and then finally at the league-wide level. Here's what Oliver had to say. So Oliver, hi, how are you doing? I'm great, thanks. How are you? Yeah, really good. Looking forward to chatting to you today. I like to start these interviews with a bit of biographical background and I was doing a bit of research before I was recording and it's very obvious that you've had quite an interesting and wide-ranging career. Could you give us a sense of how you ended up doing what it is that you do? Certainly. It's probably not considered the usual path to where I got to. Like you said, being an English guy operating in North America is a little bit different from the start, especially my journey to get here was pretty unique. So if I go all the way back to leaving school at 18, I took a gap year and I went to Leeds Met in the end and did a, I started a degree in sports coaching. And after a year, ridiculously ironic now, I decided that the path I was going down in sports coaching was pretty unrealistic and that some random kid from Sheffield who's never been a pro was never going to get a job in the football industry. Because at the time, you know, analysis wasn't really a job scouts yeah but former players and every coach working for professional clubs was a former player so i took the time to think about what i wanted to do and decided to enroll in a marketing course and switched my major to marketing so completed my time at leeds and while i was there i met someone who'd just come back from playing football in america you know on a scholarship they told me all about getting free tuition free meals free housing you know you would get free university in exchange for playing for the football team. So being definitely not a great footballer, but someone of a certain ability, I had the ability to go and get myself a scholarship, which I did. And then when I finished that two years later, so by this time I was 22, 23, I decided to come back to England and got in touch with a couple of people from the sports coaching course, one of which was a guy named Chris Trotter, who's now the head of scouting at Rotherham. But at the time he was working for Millsborough as an analyst. He told me all about performance analysis, you know, the route he'd gone down, how it all worked, what his daily job was. And I really liked the thought of it. So I got in touch with a couple of people I did know in the industry and managed to get myself an internship at Sheffield Wednesday, obviously hometown. I'm a Sheffield United fan, so it was a little difficult at first, but job in football is a job in football. So I worked for Sheffield Wednesday for a year as an intern, doing intern things, you know, scanning documents, clipping some set pieces, clips of loan players, stuff like that. And after a while, I decided that my future was probably out in America, certainly in the short term, I wanted to return. So I came back out and having done a year in a professional football club, I kind of knew there was a little bit of a niche there in America. Analysis was a little bit behind in terms of performance analysis, certainly. So I started applying and got my first job at the University of Virginia. For those who don't know about the American college system, it's a huge, huge product machine, player development machine, send players to the pros regularly. In fact, Daryl DK, who um, you know did very well at Barnsley at the back end of this year, came from the University of Virginia. 
So I worked there for two years. We actually won uh, the national championship. So the, the main competition that you compete in and got a couple of offers from a few, actually three different MLS teams after my second year there. Moved into MLS, you know, and uh, I worked for Houston Dynamo for two and a half years, actually. Started off as the kind of first team analyst, regular pre-post-game workflows, all that type of stuff. And very quickly moved into recruitment. Started using data in recruitment, working with the general manager on squad planning, contract valuation, you know, all that type of stuff. And then got approached by the Canadian Premier League, where I am now, to be the director of football for the whole league. So... Kind of a whirlwind, ridiculously busy, crazy 10-year period, really, where I went from Leeds to America, back to Sheffield, to Houston, to Canada. So I've certainly been all over and experienced a lot of things, but it's been a great story so far and it's been a lot of fun. I do a lot of these interviews with people working in the analytics industry and I don't get the chance to talk to people who have played football to any sort of high standards. So I'm interested in maybe having a little bit of a chat about that to start off with. How important do you think experience of on-field stuff in football is for someone who goes on to work in the analytics sphere? Well, first of all, I certainly don't want anyone to think I was anything special. You know, I was a a failed academy player, like a lot of people kind of washed out at 16, 17. I was never good enough, never was going to be good enough. But I, obviously there was a certain standard there. I played semi-professionally in England and, and out here. I try not to kind of paint this picture as a, a former player, as it were. But yeah, I, I do understand what you're saying. I think it really helps. I don't necessarily agree with the whole to be a good coach, to be a good whatever you have to be a former player. Like, to be honest, I think that's complete. Can I swear on this? Complete bullshit. I think for a lot of the people that say that are the ones that are former players and are looking to protect their position a little bit. But I definitely do think it can give you an advantage in certain areas. Football language is very important. Coaches buying into what you're saying because they feel like you're a football guy shouldn't be a problem, but it is. And there's no point being angry at the world for for something that exists and trying to change it you're just one guy i think it's something that you should embrace and try and make the best of so certainly being able to play in staff games you know striking a ball pretty cleanly and they don't kind of see you as the kind of the data nerd which is a you know a little bit of a unfortunate thing that gets thrown around at a lot of people i think it definitely helps them to trust you and to buy in that not only are you presenting them with certain aspects of data but You've also got the brain to understand why you've probably ignored some things you've found because you understand football a little better as well. So I don't think the issue with not having that background is as big as some people would make out, but I definitely think it's there and I think it definitely helps, yeah. Another thing I found in my research was that you did a lot of work as a striking coach um, using data to inform goal scorers as they attempted to improve their productivity in front of goal. Could you talk to us a little bit about that? How did you get into that and what did it look like? I've been doing it for the last few years now. It started at Houston, where we had a really, really promising young player named Albert Elise. Super raw, really raw, but incredibly talented. So lightning quick, great on the dribble in open spaces, not so good in tight spaces. Good in the air, you know, not massive, but good in the air. So he's a threat at the back post. He's almost like the MLS version of Adama Traore in a way. So he had so many tools and he was a good player still. Like we paid a bit of money for him, very good player, but he could be so much more, you know, and very early on in his time, 
I've done this on a couple of webinars before and, and kind of explained it. Very early on in his time at Houston, he scored a goal from a low expected goals location, you know, a typical kind of right corner of the box, 26, 27 yards out. It went under the keeper. It should have been saved, but he scored. And after that, he kind of developed this habit of dribbling on the right in open space, being one-on-one with a defender edge of the box and just kind of like blasting the ball as hard as he could at the goal. So he ended up taking 40 or 50 shots over a season almost from this location and didn't score again. And it was bugging me kind of throughout the year that I was like, I think we can change this and we can do something about this. So I approached the coaching staff, you know, obviously made a bit of a presentation with some of the issues data wise, did some education on expected goals, shot locations, looked at some alternatives of what we could do with him, use video examples and said to the staff, essentially, I think we can change this and I think we can improve our birth and we can be really methodical about what we want him to be and we can change his game for the better. So we started planning what that might look like. You know, it started with some education on my side. I would work with a coach and with Albert on highlighting this to him, showing him, breaking down some of those barriers and telling him, you know, it's it's not his fault. It's okay. Like all these things that you'd probably want to do when working with a player that doesn't seem like criticism. And we worked on a plan to improve this. So we designed training exercises, video feedback, even some data at times. I did a really fun project with him where I actually got 20 or 30 of these shots on video and I printed out a pitch for him and I actually made him make his own shot maps with some stickers. So I got him some red and green stickers about where do you think it was realistic that you would score and not score. And I think going through that process with him really helped him to understand more purposefully, like why he was shooting, when he was shooting. And the following season, you know, he changed his game. He got more dangerous. His expected goals, expected assists both went up in a similar amount of minutes. So there was a real sign of like true progression there. And he was pretty true to form in terms of uh, he wasn't under or overperforming either of those metrics either. So there was genuine improvement there. And he got voted into the MLS All-Star team, named our player of the year. So like some real tangible signs of success. So when I left Houston, I decided as part of my freedom, as it were, working for a league and not working for a club, I would be able to do this privately with some players. So I've started working with a couple of players in the Premier League now, one in the Bundesliga in Germany, one in League One in England. So I've got six players now that I work with and do this exact thing. Obviously, I, I would love to get on the grass with them a bit more and be over in Europe. But unfortunately, my my responsibilities here mean I can't do that so much. So I, I work almost as a, a remote analyst, like consultant almost, where I will regularly drop in with players, review some of their data, like look at them, what they're doing, set them some targets, discuss certain things and almost work as, you know, like people have private chefs, private strength coaches, psychologists, you know, this is just another aspect of it where I'm now working as a private analyst, mainly some attacking players, but yeah, a couple of wingers and and strikers over in Europe. So it's, it's really, really interesting and it's a lot of fun. I'm interested in the way that you navigate the use of data with players like this. I guess each player is different in insofar as they'll buy into the use of data, obviously. But what are the things you've learned about translating a lot of the stuff that you do as an analyst to make it applicable for a player who probably doesn't really think about these things, as you said? I'm sort of torn on this one. I'd like to think I'm still learning. You're always learning and there's no one size fits all solution to every player, which is a little bit of a cliche, but it's true. I used to be 
very much sort of like the more information you can give a player, the more informed they can be, the better. You know, give them everything. And when they've got all the information at hand, they will make the right decisions or they will improve their decision making. But as time's gone on, you have started speaking to a few more people in the industry, very kind of relevant at the moment. Rasmus Ankerson's book, Goldmine, mentions about a lot of the runners from Kenya and places like that almost kind of don't understand that they can't succeed. So it's kind of ingrained in them that they will win which is kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy so they can train harder and, and perform better. And when you relate that to football, there is a little bit of a danger if, you, if you're if you over-explaining shot locations and stuff like that to players that when they do get the ball in certain moments, they're overthinking, they're doubtful about the shot they're about to take and you're actually taking away some of what makes them so great. So I think as time's gone on, I have started going the other way a little bit where data is incredibly powerful and incredibly useful. But you should be a little bit cautious about how and when you're using it. And there's certainly not a, there's not the belief anymore that I have where you just throw them all their data all the time and let them make their, you know, I think there's definitely some incredible strength in keeping it simple, naming three, four things that you just want them to do really well. You know, super strengths is a a common phrase these days, you know. So in the example of Albert Elise, let's highlight his super strength, which is, dribbling 1v1 in transition, beating a man when you're 1v1 so you can get the ball three, four, five yards closer to goal. We kind of really worked on highlighting these for him rather than kind of overcomplicating it and explaining you might score two more goals a season if you do this 10 times because of expected goals and, and stuff like that, you know. So there's definitely an aspect of tailoring it to suit the audience. There's some very cerebral players out there who probably can take a bit more information like i don't know if you probably have seen the interview with jack Grealish recently where he was talking about his expected assists output and even the one with james madison you know talking about working with the analyst after the game so you do also have to kind of suit your audience and and work with the player as an individual i've got a question here about the negatives of using data working with individual players and professional players and you've obviously already started touching on that in the answer to the last question but i wondered if you had anything to add to that is there anything that you've learned that you've decided has been a bad way of presenting data or using data with players one thing i think you have to be very careful of is well two things actually one in my position working with players remotely or as an independent consultant or if you want to call it very cognizant of the fact that you're kind of messing with someone else's player and someone else's team. So you have to be very, very clear on the front end with the player about how you operate, how you'd like to operate. In a perfect world, you would work with the coaching staff at the club and inform them of what you're trying to do and why. And I found that for the most part, that works far better than just kind of operating in the shadows, for lack of a better term. There's one club that actually told me that I didn't have permission to work with their player which was a difficult situation. The agent really wanted it. The player really wanted it, but the club didn't. So then I kind of said, okay, well, ask the club. If I'm not going to do it, who at their club is going to do it with them and for them? And they didn't have an answer. They, they wouldn't fund it for a member of staff, at which point the player and the agent kind of said, well, you're not doing everything you can to help me develop as a player, so I'm going to do it on my own. You wouldn't have a problem if I had my own psychologist or strength coach or whatever strength may be a little different but it's definitely psychologist or sleep coach or chef or whatever and we worked through it and now we are working together and especially because he had some success early on so then they were a bit more amenable to picking up the phone and talking with me about how i was working with this player because he's improved which was great but second when you're working for a club definitely being a little bit careful of explaining to players 
just how well they might be doing, especially when it comes to contract negotiation time and stuff like that. It didn't happen at Houston, but I know an analyst elsewhere who was working with a player, telling them how good they were, how well they were ranked in the league in certain metrics. And then the player came into the boss's office with a, a list of all the percentiles in his rankings in the league and said, you know, I, according to this, I'm like the second, third, fourth best in almost every area. I want to be paid that way and didn't go so well for the analyst then. So you just have to be careful of purism almost, you know, like you have to play the game of football a little bit and know that what might be the right thing to do in isolation isn't always the right thing to do for a club that are trying to, you know, there's so much that goes on at clubs, even you know, if you want to work with a player one-on-one on his shooting or, or whatever, great. But, you know, what if he needs to rest those days? What if the strength team are worried about his numbers? You know, what if you don't know what's going on elsewhere in the club? So just being very aware that you can't just operate in isolation and what you do isn't always tied into what the rest of the club wants to do. I want to move more into the club side of things now away from individual work that you've been doing. One of the things that we're always told about is how working in data analysis within a club setting is actually more about normalizing the use of data within a club setting and getting people at the club used to the idea of using data as part of their processes. You've done a lot of work in North America and so perhaps attitudes to data usage are slightly more progressive at clubs. But could you talk to us about your experiences of normalizing the use of data within club settings a little bit? It's a really interesting topic and a very important part, in my opinion, being a good data analyst or person that uses data. You know, I I certainly wouldn't pigeonhole myself into being, you know, a data analyst. Like I'm I'm far from one of these guys that codes in Python or R or anything like that. I'm more kind of a data translator, where someone that knows how to use data, I think I know how it can be incorporated into recruitment and, and all these other areas of the club. But I'm not probably the one who's going to go out and pass the data and and start querying databases and stuff. Although that's what I kind of did at Houston, but that was very much more of a looking at five or six key metrics on a per 90 basis and profiling some players before we scouted them. Finding a way to turn kind of impact culture at a club and make it data-driven, evidence-based is crucial and something that again at Houston it was very tough for me at first actually my first year at Houston my first six months or so was very very difficult for me culturally I really struggled to implement any change you know I was kind of kicking the tires a little bit on different ideas of how to how to make things happen but then slowly culture did start changing I think when I got involved in recruitment it really helped but normalizing language phrases questions and challenging opinions in a very respectful way is incredibly important for a a data analyst and as soon as you switch from knocking on people's doors trying to convince them why they should look at this piece of data or this graph you've got in your hand to them coming to you asking if you can measure something for them then you're starting to win that battle so much of it is being a pragmatist right and and knowing that do you want to kind of die on certain hills and get into an argument about every single aspect of the club with everyone all the time? Or do you kind of pick your fights and, you know, really go out for the important battles and sometimes let, I don't want to say let the coaching staff win because that sounds like an us versus them type mentality, but sometimes you've got to let some stuff go that might not be perfect, but you know, it's not going to kill you in the end because you need that little bit of credibility. You don't want to be the, the guy that's always arguing with people, you know, save it for the big one and if you've let them have three or four little ones first and you say this is one i really 
believe in. I need this one. I think they, they kind of get it a little bit more. And it's about managing personalities, managing relationships. And at the end of the day, if the staff at the club trust you and like you and believe that the work that you do is accurate and you're doing it for the right reasons, then you'll be okay. But it's this this kind of, and it's happening a lot less now, but this kind of belief, almost arrogance in a way that a lot of people have had around data people that everyone thinks they're smarter than everyone that's running clubs, you know, especially on Twitter, you know, people act like it's so easy just to have a list of transfer targets and managers lined up and you could run a club so well. But I mean, it's not the real world, you know, um, for sure, there's some way better organized clubs than others. But if you don't think that certain clubs are doing all this work in the background, you're wrong. For the most part, clubs are doing an awful lot of work, contingency planning, like all this stuff. But just because you've got a manager's name on a shortlist or a player's name on a shortlist doesn't mean that you can, it's not football manager. You can't just kind of submit a bid for them and go get them and it's all fine and dandy. You know, that's not how the real world works. So having some respect about how difficult it is to be good at running a football club, I think really helps. And I think it's something that's underestimated by a lot of people. I asked you about the negative impact of, I guess, translating data to players i'd like to extend that to the clubs then what are the negative things that you've sort of learned from as you've attempted to sort of translate data to clubs yeah so i kind of alluded to it a little bit a minute ago but um trying to trying to get involved in too much too soon is definitely one so i went into houston off the back of nothing but success at virginia um nothing but empowerment you know, I, I got pumped up a lot. You know, a lot of the ideas I had were very new, but they were they worked and they were implemented and we had success. We won a national championship. And I kind of went to Houston very confident in my abilities. I thought, you know, it'd be the same again. And then you kind of rock up there, having been kind of in their mind at the bottom of the food chain at a college, developing their young players. Um, and you're, you're showing up at, you know, clubs that have got, Demarcus Beasley, who's you know played a hundred odd times for the national team and played in a Champions League semi final, and Philippe Senderos, and uh, you know some people that are getting paid millions of dollars a year to play, and you're just kind of like the solo young analyst, twenty five years old with a laptop, and who's this guy to tell? Me? And I, don't get me wrong, I wasn't kind of abrasive, and I wasn't kind of this know it all, but it's very difficult to kind of have that traction and. You just have to go through the process of kind of building that relationship and giving people confidence in in what you do. So at the time I was doing a lot of the pre and post game stuff as well. So video work and I would do a presentation to the to the group, you know, pregame. And just for example, what I would do was copy and paste the PowerPoint and then just change the logos, change, you know, change all the information in it. But the format would stay the same. And like three or four games in, I left like the previous team's logo on one of the pages. It was like a 20 odd page PowerPoint, you know, shape, certain things to watch out for, some data. And on like slide 13 of 20, like one of the logos was wrong. And the manager pulled me into the office the next week and was like, everyone noticed it. You know, what? don't think that people don't notice this. If you can't look after the small details on this, how are they going to know that you've looked after the small details when you're looking at data and video and stuff like that if they don't have confidence that everything you do is correct when you tell them this is what's going to happen on a corner or whatever they're also going to think well he got that wrong last week so why do we trust him you know so learning learning just how good you have to be 
almost how on your game all the time you have to be at the very top level of the game I think was a little bit of a not a shock to me but definitely a learning experience well let's start talking about the work that you're doing at the moment as you mentioned you've moved into working with the Canadian Premier League many of our listeners won't know a huge amount about the Canadian Premier League so could you maybe give us a little bit of context and history to the Canadian Premier League very famous book Soconomics you know named Canada as I think the most underperforming nation in the world compared to GDP and population and, and resources and stuff compared to their success on the international football stage. Canada had a professional league back in the 70s and 80s, which disbanded part to a match fixing scandal that was going on within the league. And, you know, it kind of dissolved. And, and ever since then, there's been no professional league in Canada for years and years. So you've got the three Canadian MLS clubs who have been around for roughly 10 years now. But other than that, there's been no professional football industry in Canada. So off the back of the 2026 World Cup, which is going to be hosted by Mexico, US and Canada combined, the Canadian Premier League was born. So in 2019, we launched with seven teams in a seven-team league across the country. We're now on eight with plans to expand when appropriate. So we're three years in. We've played two seasons, one of which was completely destroyed by COVID. So... You can imagine launching a brand new league, having a very, very good first year. You know, we we really had a lot of success. You know, one of our teams knocked out an MLS team with literally 10 times bigger budget on players over two legs, uh, which was amazing. You know, we did very well on the international stage. One of our teams represented us in the CONCACAF Champions League and did great. We had almost as good of a first year as you could ever imagine. You know, we sold some young players, which we weren't expecting to do after year one. And then... Two days into pre-season in March of 2019, the whole world shut down. So we ended up playing a 10-game season in a quarantine bubble. So everyone went to the same location, played one round of fixtures against each other, and then kind of a knockout playoffs at the end. We've got plans to get going again this year, hopefully as soon as possible. But we're just about to play our third season. It's been a really strange experience. You know, I, I came in, we had an amazing first year. Everything looked incredibly positive for the league. And then... I mean, COVID hit everybody hard, but a league that had only ever operated for one year previously, it's a miracle we survived in a way. Obviously, I've done a lot of developing on the football data side of things over the last few years of my career at Houston and in Virginia, but I think this has brought a whole new aspect of understanding the business of football to me, you know, dealing with immigration lawyers on our international players, you know, ITCs for transfers, dealing with Canada soccer about sanctioning, you know, governments on quarantine protocols and health and safety. So an 18 month crash course on crisis management really for me, which has been, like I said, very interesting and a huge learning experience. So you're now the director of football at the Canadian Premier League. Could you tell us what that job entails? I mean, you've given a sense of crisis management there. What does your wider remit look like? My remit, much like a director of football at a club really, would be help us succeed. Are we going to be better with you running things or involved in our league or our club than if you weren't? I would like to think that the answer to that is, is yes. <laughs> and hopefully they agree because I'm still working and they haven't fired me. So I guess it's going okay. My job description is literally make us better, make us better on the field, help us however you see fit with that. So I work with clubs on recruitment, video analysis, strength and conditioning, even though it's not my area, just an understanding of, you know, some best practice and more infrastructure building. So 
how are our clubs being run? What are their decision-making processes? Like I said, my background's in analysis. So obviously, I help them an awful lot there. Recruitment too. And then working on, I hate to say the bottom end of the pyramid, the younger end of the pyramid. So the, the young player pathways, how are we getting good young players into our league? How are we working with youth clubs in the local areas to to help facilitate learning and development in the players so that the young ones coming into the Canadian Premier League are better than they were before and each year we're improving. So it's really a multifaceted role that doesn't really have any truly defined kind of boundaries. It's just do things that help the league get better on the pitch. That might be facilitating a player transfer if it means that our club gets money to invest elsewhere, but it might mean going out and helping them buy a player that I think has got an incredible future for us. So yeah, really, really interesting role. Very rewarding in that you're able to set your own path and manage your own time accordingly, but also sometimes a little bit nerve wracking when you don't really have any boundaries to stick within. So you can't just kind of stick your head down and say, okay, I'm just going to do my job, do this, because it's up to you to make up what that job is a little bit. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that as an analyst, it's it's sort of coloured the direction that you've taken on a lot of these things. And from my research, it's clear that you're looking to foster a data culture in the Canadian Premier League. So could you talk us through what it is that you're doing to achieve this sort of analytic culture in, in the league itself? I think an important thing to remember is there's some incredibly talented people from all over the globe in, in data and analysis, of course. But I think we'd all agree that North America is also kind of one of the prominent areas of the world you know in a bit of a hotbed with some great analysts here so where we might struggle at the moment for talent on the field you know obviously you've got Alfonso Davies and Jonathan David and these incredible Canadian players but across the board the Canadian talent pool isn't there as it is in England or Germany or wherever but what we do have is a lot of people that are potentially incredibly talented with the use of data so as someone who's tasked with improving the league, even if you're running a club, you look at what you've got resources available and you find out how to leverage them to your advantage. So one area that we think we could probably gain the most ground quickly is like, okay, we've got loads of talented analysts in North America. Let's find a way to get them into our clubs. Let's find a way for our clubs to be using data better. Let's find out how we can tie it into recruitment, into pre and post game preparation things like that, because this is an area where we can excel and we can really do well very quickly. So part of that was working with Opta, our data providers, and we release a data set, a fairly robust data set live after each game. So it goes out about 10 minutes after the games are played and it's pushed to anyone who signs up over an email and they just receive a an Excel spreadsheet in their inbox. So they can, you know, do their dashboards, you know, build their models, do whatever it is they want to do. We just want to make it as easy as possible for people to grab data so they don't have to go somewhere and scrape it. And it's been a a huge aspect of analytics. Twitter really has been scraping data and everyone scrapes from Opta, from Scout, from wherever. Like it's going to happen to us too. Why don't we just make it easier for everyone and release it? That was one of my things in year one that I pushed quite hard for with Opta and they were great. They really helped us with that. So it's been a good project so far. Have you noticed many fruits from that coming through already, even a couple of years down the line? Yeah, we've got a couple of analysts working in our clubs now. I'd say the biggest one, he certainly didn't need any help, but Sam Gregory, Canadian, you know, he's very well known in the industry. Now working at Inter Miami with David Beckham's team. Great guy, like really super talented analyst. But I think, like I said before, we're one real year and one half year in. So 
I think the next few years will be telling, but there's some great Twitter accounts, you know, dashboards that pop up post game expected goals models and all this type of stuff like there. It's starting to happen. Yeah. It's starting to churn out. So really happy with how it's gone so far. We've talked about the impact that you've had working with individuals and also clubs. So I'm interested in the impact that you've had guiding a league through its early development. So what have you learned from working with the Canadian Premier League about analysis? What's great about this role for me personally is, you know, when you're in a club, you're learning about how one club operates and you're talking to a few bodies, you know, a few friends that work in other clubs maybe, but everyone's a little bit guarded. I'm now working with eight clubs simultaneously, helping them, you know, with guidance on their problems. If they have them, a lot of the time I say, I don't know, of course. So that's great. We're talking about eight clubs who are somewhere between League One, League Two and the top end of the conference in terms of infrastructure. So probably three or four coaching staff, an analyst, you know, a couple of physios, like that type of size of staff. So it's been an incredible insight. I feel like I'm learning eight times quicker almost than I would if I was just working for one club. So the ability to do that and experience that's been really good. And just like the players where you learn to be a bit of a pragmatist and getting a job done is better than getting a job not done perfectly, almost. It's kind of the same here where there isn't a one-size-fits-all solution for every club. You can't just draw up on a map like this is how you should operate and this is why you have to understand everyone's strengths, weaknesses, You know what it's like in their local town, in their local city, what they can leverage better than other clubs and help them find solutions. So just like learning to be incredibly flexible. And I think, again, I, I've learned more than anything that this kind of notion that there's just there's obviously a way that your club should operate and you don't want to go too far away from how that is or how that is drawn up but certainly it can't just be a plug and play solution that works for every club and adapting bending in certain areas is incredibly important i always try and end these interviews with a question about the future and it's sort of hard to know how to angle this at you given that you like you said you're working at that meta level above above all these clubs so yeah maybe just a more general question what do you think the future of analytics looks like from the perspective of particularly leagues are we going to start seeing more leagues taking the analytics side of things a little bit more seriously and in a realization as you've said that actually if you can foster a data culture within a league then you can see that league really benefiting from it yeah i think we will so the premier league have done a great job in the past of providing resources for their clubs to help them you know at the cutting edge so definitely a very relevant north american example would be the Premier League taking James Bunce off of Southampton, who was a physical guy, you know, he worked with biobanding and all this type of stuff. I think he was very involved in Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain's development. The Premier League took him and he built a department to provide resources for all of the clubs in the Premier League. So the quality of play would go up across the board. And I think you'll start seeing a lot more of that. So we do it here. We have a an internal scouting department. We run an analysis department, a recruitment department from the league office. We act as, I always call it, the ninth department in the league. So we've got eight clubs. We're the ninth and we provide a resource for everybody. I think if you're a league that's looking to grow in stature, grow in quality, then employing the right people at league level, providing their service to all of your clubs, almost like a consultant, I think is something that's going to happen. So do I think that League Two clubs and the National League or the conference are going to start having some data scientists from NASA work on ball progression models and optical tracking and this stuff, probably not for a long time. But I do certainly think that 
smart leagues will start to invest in resources for their clubs and analytics is going to play a big part in that. Well, Oliver, thank you so much for coming on today. No problem. It's been great. Really enjoyed talking. So that was Oliver Gage, the Director of Football for the Canadian Premier League. To find out more about the Canadian Premier League, visit www.canpl.ca. Oliver is on Twitter at G4GEY. We'll be back next month with another interesting guest, but until then, make sure you subscribe to this podcast, rate and review it, and check out all of the content that is going out from Analytics FC on our Twitter account, at Analytics FC. Goodbye.